Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, dear listeners. It is I, Zach Twomley. I hope you're enjoying Bismarck Rise, but I should just give you a handy reminder to know that you can access all of these episodes in one lump sum if you head on over to Patreon and support this podcast at literally any level. As you'll quickly discover if you head over to Patreon, there isn't just Bismarck to feast upon, there's also a whole load of other stuff to feast upon as well. So for instance, if you do support at the $1 level, which is the lowest you can go to, you'll not only get all of Bismarck Rise, you'll also get a 10-part series called Louis XIV's Arms and Armies. So if you want to learn more about how Louis XIV's army in the second half of the 1600s battered and battled against its enemies, then make sure you listen to that. I can assure you there's none of those cheese-eating surrender monkey tropes to be found there, just loads of details and loads of interesting information as we go deep into the weeds of how the French army worked, and what exactly Louis XIV did to make it such a fearsome instrument in expanding his power. Louis XIV is of course a bit disconnected from Bismarck, but there's a whole load of other different series that you can access exclusively on Patreon at different levels. Would you like to learn more about the Suez Crisis of 1956? Would you like to learn more about Jan Sobieski, Poland's last great king? Would you like to learn more about Poland itself in the 18th century, and how it endured against all odds until finally being snuffed out in the closing years of that century? Well, say no more. Head on over to Patreon and you can access all of that. Patreon is how I keep this podcast going even while I do my PhD. So even while these ads might be a bit irritating, I hope that in the grand scheme of things, you understand. And hey, if you're curious, just head on over and have a look. And that's my pitch. If you're not interested in Patreon, absolutely cool. Don't worry about it. Simply do your best to spread the word about this podcast in other ways. Bismarck Rise is a brand new departure for this series, and it's something I'm really excited about. So you can share in this excitement and take part in the Bismarck Party by linking up with us on social media. The Facebook page, Facebook group, and Twitter are the best places to do that. Thanks for listening to this little plug, guys. I really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy this latest episode, episode 3 of Bismarck Rise. It's a good one. You won't be disappointed. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the latest episode of Hardcore, When Diplomacy Fails. This is Bismarck Rise, episode 3, and herein we're going to be looking at the years 1853 to 1859. It was a very important period in Bismarck's life, and it was an equally important period in European history. 
A lot of things happened during this time period. One of the most important, of course, was the Crimean War. We ended the last episode on something of a cliffhanger, as the Crimean War erupted and kind of forced the Austrians to make a difficult choice. They had just been saved, after all, by the Russians during the 1848 revolutions. If not for the sudden intervention of the Tsar in that conflict, then the Austrians would probably have been overrun by the rebelling Hungarians. That this didn't happen, and that the Russians did come to the rescue, made the Tsar assume on Vienna's good behaviour, on her support, or at the very least her friendly neutrality. The coming events were to disabuse the Tsar of these expectations, and they were, according to his son, about to break his heart. In fact, according to some, the betrayal of Austria was the thing that actually killed the Tsar. Whether you believe that or not is another issue, but this is certainly a pivotal period of Bismarck's life, and it's a period which I think is very underrated. This was when Bismarck was at his prime in Frankfurt. He achieved an awful lot during this time, and he certainly went out of his way to make a name for himself as the bugbear of Austria. Being the bugbear of Austria is much easier when Austria loses several of its friends, which was what the ruinous foreign policy of Vienna managed to do after the Crimean War. They managed to annoy the Russians and annoy the British and French, who they were supposedly the nominal ally of. Speaking of allies, though, something very odd happened just as the Crimean War was erupting. On the 20th of April, 1854, Austria announced that it had formalised an alliance with Prussia. Such a fact can seem strange. Was this not the perfect opportunity for Prussia to attack Austria, while Austria was distracted and trying to juggle all these different foreign policy objectives at once? This was the chance, surely, that had been waited for before. Austria's difficulty was Prussia's opportunity, and now perhaps the Prussians could avenge the humiliation of Olmutz and contest Austria's leadership of Germany. It was ideal. It was like this perfect chance had just fallen into Prussia's lap. But Prussia didn't make use of it. As we said, she concluded an alliance with Austria in April 1854 instead. According to this alliance, Prussia would be required to act in tandem with Austria. She would have to mobilise up to 200,000 soldiers if circumstances required, and she would also have to march them to the Russian border as well. This alliance was directed against the Russians. That seemed pretty self-evident, and it was very far from what Bismarck would have wanted to see happen. But this doesn't mean that Bismarck had been left in the dark. In the middle of April, as Prussian policy was still being considered, Bismarck had been invited from Frankfurt, and he had been brought into Berlin to talk strategy. King Frederick William and his entourage must have known deep down that Bismarck wasn't going to tell them what they wanted to hear, but they must have just believed that he could offer some valuable insights nonetheless, because he was brought into their confidence. He records, Bismarck records that is, in his memoirs, how he laid out his vision for what Prussia could gain from this situation, with all the interested powers, France... Britain, Russia and Austria occupied, there would never be a better time for Prussia to raise an army of 100,000 or more and then just kind of perch it, just kind of leave it suggestively on the border with Russia and with Austria. They could increase this amount of soldiers to 200,000 if necessary and they had to be ready to strike in either direction. Bismarck had even accounted for the effects of an English blockade in case the British didn't particularly like Prussia's opportunism. But Bismarck believed Prussia could withstand such a blockade, since he believed the blockade from Britain 
would not have been much more dangerous than those of the Danes, which we had several times undergone, and which had no less effectually in former years closed our ports. But Bismarck believed this difficulty would be counterbalanced by the establishment of Prussian and German independence, with the result that his majesty would instantly become the master of the entire European situation and would be able to dictate peace and to gain in Germany a worthy place of Prussia. So Bismarck wasn't seeing Germany, in case it wasn't obvious. All he was concerned about was the Prussian interest. He dismissed the concerned pleas of several minor German rulers at the time, and he argued that these moods, as in the moods of those minor German princes, would soon have changed had an energetic Prussian attitude in Upper Silesia demonstrated that neither France nor Austria was at that time capable of offering us resistance in superior force if we determined to avail ourselves of their denuded and compromised situation. After unveiling this master plan to his audience, in the king's presence, no less, what do we imagine King Frederick William would have made of this, this upstart diplomat, this man who he'd only given a promotion to a couple of years before, was now coming to him with a grand strategy plan, a master plan, as Bismarck surely conceived of it, to make Prussia supreme by taking advantage of everyone else's misfortune. Bismarck, for his part, recorded that the king was in no way insensible to the mood of conviction in which I represented to him the facts and the eventualities of the case. The king might not have been insensible to Bismarck's convictions, but he certainly would have taken issue with the contents of Bismarck's plan. My dear boy, that is all very fine, but it is too expensive for me. A man of Napoleon's kind can afford to make such master strokes, but not I, Frederick William said. Indeed, it would take Frederick William's brother to imagine that Prussia's situation could drastically change through a war with Austria. But for now, war with Austria seemed just like too great a leap into the unknown, and Frederick William decided that discretion was the better part of valour. Though Bismarck was disappointed at being let down, he could take solace from the fact that neither Austria nor Prussia were to become directly involved in this Crimean War. What was more, and of even greater importance to him, Bismarck observed that just by standing still, almost just by existing, Prussia was able to watch as Austria walked herself into a diplomatic faux pas, with the result that when the Crimean War did come to an end in 1856, the hapless minister-president of Austria, Count Buell, had managed to alienate the Russians and the French, and this left Vienna in a state of isolation which hadn't been seen since Napoleonic times, in the really dark days of Napoleonic victories, when another coalition didn't seem all that possible. Indeed, by the end of 1854, without the knowledge of Prussia, we can say that Count Buell, member of the Austrian minister-president, kind of he went into business for himself a little bit, and he decided that the correct policy would be one which backed the Western Allies, as in Britain and France, so he concluded a secret alliance with those two powers on the 2nd of December 1854. By this point, for the record, Buell had already done irreparable damage to the Austro-Russian relationship. Buell had issued an ultimatum in the spring of 1854, which had demanded that the Russians evacuate themselves from the Danubian principalities, or Moldavia and Wallachia. We looked before at these Danubian principalities, and we noted why they were so important to Austria's concept of security and identity in the area. 
But these considerations didn't make the pill any easier to swallow for the Russians, who felt utterly betrayed. The betrayal was only exacerbated by the fact that, at least to the Russians, it seemed like the Austrians were deadly serious. They supported their ultimatum with an army of 228,000 men, and they mobilised this army on the Russian border. Buell's policy was supposed to show Russia that she couldn't interfere in such a delicate theatre. Perhaps a more self-aware Tsar, which Tsar Nicholas unfortunately was not, would have realised that charging down south into what had previously been a delicately balanced buffer zone was bound to agitate Vienna, and all previous ideas of friendship and loyalty to one another would go out the window in the face of state national interest. But just at the point when the Russians were about to push the Turks back, a signal was received from St. Petersburg to retreat, this signal being influenced by the fact that the Austrians were making very loud noises on the Russian border, and Russia could not afford another theatre opening in the war at this time. Within a few months, and before 1854 was over, the Russians had retreated and would forever blame their losses upon the Austrians. And the Austrians, apparently unaware of how bad this made them look, moved into the Danubian principalities and occupied Wallachia and Moldavia for the duration of the war. I'm just taking a sip of coffee while I contemplate how incredibly awful Buell's policy was here. It's hard to overstate just how important this enormous blunder was on Austria's part. After they concluded their alliance with Britain and France, an alliance which Buell probably pushed for because he felt uneasy about the Tsar now being so offended at him, Austrian agents then attempted to get the German Confederation to mobilise alongside Vienna and effectively to follow her lead in foreign policy as well. From the very beginning, this mission was impossible. The minor German princes didn't care for what the Austrians were doing, and they certainly had no interest in those Danubian principalities. Thank you very much. Oh, also, Austria, what exactly are you doing alienating your friends, cozying up to the French, and being so influenced by the British? Aren't we supposed to be independent? Don't you have some kind of plan for where this will all end up? In fact, Buell did not seem to have such a plan. From the very beginning, Austria's policy was faced with impossible roadblocks. She blundered into one of these in the German Confederation, but others were still to come. In correspondence with Leopold von Gerlach, his old conservative younger ally who had the ear of the king, and don't forget who pushed Bismarck into politics in the first place, were given more pieces of information regarding the situation in Germany. Thus, in mid-October 1854, Leopold von Gerlach wrote to Bismarck, saying, After reading everything and balancing one thing against the other to the best of my power, I consider it very probable that Austria will not fail to get the two-thirds support for war with Russia. Hanover is playing a false game. Brunswick's sympathies are with the Western powers. The Thuringians, equally so. Bavaria is in all frames of mind, and His Majesty the King of Prussia is a wavering reed. And in addition to all this, we have Vienna apparently decided on war. It follows that from all this we must be well on the lookout for any eventuality, even be prepared for war against the Western powers allied with Austria, and that it will not do to depend upon any of the German princes, and so on. May the Lord grant that we not be found weak, but it would be an untruth were I to say I place implicit trust in those who gamble on our destinies. Let us therefore hold fast together. In the year 1850, Radowitz brought us to a point much the same as that to which Buell over there has brought us by letting things drift. 
This letter from Gerlach to Bismarck provides an interesting insight on what Gerlach believed would be the likelihood of war, but he got it a bit wrong at the same time. Contrary to what Gerlach said about Austrian Minister-President Buell here, Buell had not let things drift. Instead, he had gone in the opposite direction entirely, and he had blundered straight into a disastrous policy from the offing. He ignored the Tsar's verbal promises that Russia would have no ambitions for Wallachia and Moldavia, and he interpreted Russia's difficulties in facing down the Turks as the best chance the Austrians would have to push St. Petersburg out of the Balkans for good. 1854 was the defining year of this policy for Buell, as the Russians did evacuate from those principalities and changed their entire war plan in the process. Henceforth, the conflict would move away from the Balkans entirely, that front being virtually forgotten, mostly because of the name which would later be attributed to this war, the Crimean War, as focus moved away from the Balkans and towards that troubled peninsula. Despite this change in focus, the Tsar's intense bitterness remained consuming, following him to his grave on the 2nd of March, 1855. Austrian ingratitude, Nicholas's son and successor, was reported to have said, has killed my father. But in actual fact, the Crimean War had been a strain on the ailing Nicholas for some time, and the more he learned of its horrible impact on the soldiers that he had sent to fight in Russia's name, the more he came to despise his decisions and regret those policies which had led him to this point. Already suffering from a history of mental illness which had afflicted his brother and his father, Tsar Nicholas's final fight proved to be Crimea, when at one point he had imagined Crimea to be his crowning legacy. As ungrateful as Austria had apparently been, she was not finished disappointing Russia just yet. By the end of 1855, more ultimatums came from Vienna to the effect that Russia had better agree to those Allied terms or else Austria would, by gum for real this time, march her army of now nearly 250,000 into the Russian interior. The new Tsar and son of Tsar Nicholas, Alexander II, had never been a particularly big fan of his father's war to begin with and this ultimatum here was the last straw. He pulled the plug on the Crimean War shortly thereafter though peace negotiations would drag on for some time after this event. The Crimean War was a weird conflict in many respects, because even though it achieved very little for the victorious belligerents, that being Britain, France and poor little Sardinia, who's often forgotten about, by the time it concluded fully on the 30th of March 1856, the world seemed to have gained a different axle to turn on. Russia became consumed with change for the next decade. Under Tsar Alexander II, she abolished serfdom and she embraced limited liberal ideas under the reforming Tsar. For Britain and France, the main story was the involvement of the media in the war, which at first loudly advocated the conflict and then recoiled in horror when they discovered that war wasn't actually all that nice. Who knew? Reforms in how officers were appointed, how soldiers were trained, how rations and provisions were supplied... All of these spheres of the military came under review in London, while Napoleon III could claim that he had launched an effective war and avenged the loss of 1812, in some respects. Still, although the French people might have been satisfied to emerge victorious, they didn't have all that much to show for it in the end. It wasn't like they made a big land grab or held on to the Crimean Peninsula, and who would have cared all that much about the Crimean Peninsula anyway? What was more... They didn't gain any conquests, they also didn't get any indemnities from the Russians, 
all the Russians would have to do would be to neutralize and dismantle their Black Sea fleet, effectively making that sea free from all military vessels and opening Constantinople up to international trade, which was what the British really wanted. In Napoleon III's mind, and in some of his more nostalgic ministers' minds, the defeat of Russia meant that that was only one down. There remained two of Napoleon's foes left who had to be taught a lesson. Britain might be a bit harder to reach, but surely something could now be arranged with Austria. In fact, as the beleaguered Austrian minister-president Buell was to quickly discover, the major result of the Crimean War for Vienna was that everyone seemingly now wanted a piece of Franz Josef's Habsburg Empire. Austria was bombarded with requests to intervene in the Crimean War by the British and French. By disappointing them, just as she had angered and frustrated the Russians, she found herself isolated. Buell's decision to rush and occupy the Danubian principalities also painted his actions in a less than favourable light. His momentary friendship with the British and French seemed in their capitals to be like little more than an opportunistic land grab once the Austrian soldiers moved into those regions. If the optics of his policy towards the Allies were bad, then the impact of the betrayal of Russia appeared to not merely have changed things, but ended an epoch in international affairs. Let's remember the Holy Alliance of Austria, Russia and Prussia set up in 1815. There was now no question of that alliance continuing. How on earth could Russia support Austria after what she had done to her? The Holy Alliance of 1815 had pretty much been shot dead from the moment that Buell sent those ultimatums to the Russian court. The new Tsar would never be able to swallow the intense feelings of resentment towards those opportunistic Habsburgs who had kicked the Russians just at the time when she was down and in need of a friend. What if Russia had acted similarly in 1848? Alexander II might have asked. Vienna wouldn't even be a power anymore and she'd probably be ruled by those Hungarians. While Russia and France gave Vienna the cold shoulder, the German states had also been quite unimpressed with how Austria had conducted herself, especially in her efforts to bully the German states into supporting her war policy. While war was never declared, Germans had been given a frightful taste of what life under Vienna might be like in the future. Who's to say that, caught between Russia and France in the future, Vienna wouldn't make such a grave policy error once again? and commit Germany to war on two fronts. It'd be wrong to note that these errors in policy by Buell drove Bavaria, Saxony or Württemberg into Prussia's arms, but it certainly made these German states think twice about Austria's glittering reputation for quality leadership and consideration of all the Germans. This leadership had been established by Metternich and, in some ways at least, confirmed by the late Schwarzenberg. But now, under Buell, it was pretty clear that an era had ended. And now Austria was in deep trouble. But what about the Prussian position? In spring 1856, Bismarck was close to marking his fifth anniversary of his appointment at Frankfurt. But he had done little to merit this new improvement in Prussia's position. In fact, it's fair to say that Austria had done Bismarck's work for him, having squandered her position and and pretty much pushed her friends away. Everything which Bismarck did after this moment was made possible by Austria's blunders in the Crimean War. Bismarck never could have imagined, when he'd first learned of that crisis in mid-1853, that it would work out so completely in Prussia's favour. 
It'd be fair to say that Prussia emerged from this Crimean mess with the squeakiest of clean reputations, and compared to the other great powers, she hadn't betrayed her friends, and she hadn't expended resources to make threats. The question now wasn't whether everything had changed, but what Bismarck could or would do in these changed circumstances. How long would it take him to put into motion the policy which he now believed was the only one for Prussia, that policy being direct competition and eventual war? In fact, Bismarck hadn't waited for the Crimean War to end before investing more time in his anti-Austrian plans. In the summer of 1855, circumstances worked in Bismarck's favour because Paris was ablaze with something called the Industrial Exhibition. The Industrial Exhibition was Napoleon III's answer to London's Great Exhibition of 1851. Napoleon III had wanted his World Fair to display the best and brightest of French culture and achievements, these achievements including breakthroughs in industrial technology, as the name suggested. All told, the initiative lasted from February to November of 1855, and it provided a nice distraction from the final salvos of the Crimean War, which, as Bismarck soon discovered, many French people were not all that interested in. They were far more likely to be interested in the grand spectacle of this exhibition, which was visited in the end by over 5 million visitors, all of whom had come to see what France had to offer, and most of whom left very impressed. No less a visitor than Queen Victoria arrived to see for herself what this French capital had to offer. It was a move that was designed to bolster Anglo-French relations in this final push of the Crimean War. In the previous April, that is of 1854, Napoleon had been on show himself in London, so it was time now for Victoria to return the favour. Queen Victoria arrived, complete with her massive entourage of course, in Paris on the 19th of August 1855, and a week after this a ball was given by the French in Victoria's honour at Versailles. It was during the course of this ball that Bismarck was introduced to the royal British couple and to the imperial French couple. The prince, Bismarck said, and in this he's referring to Prince Albert, the husband of Victoria, was handsome and cool in his black uniform, and Bismarck adds that Albert conversed with me courteously, though Bismarck adds that in Albert's tone there was a malevolent curiosity, which Bismarck put down to Albert's knowledge of Bismarck's influence on the king. What influence, we may ask? Again, we're confronted with the spectacle of Bismarck trying to put himself on a pedestal of sorts and claiming that he had influence which he almost certainly did not have. But did he certainly not have it? Was he just telling porkies again? Well, according to Bismarck in his memoirs, all of Prussia's diplomatic personnel were of the view, in 1855, that he would be given a ministerial post, despite the fact that all evidence had shown just how opposed Bismarck was to the official policy of the king and of Manteuffel, the minister-president. Was there really much realistic chance of such a reactionary, such a contrarian, being appointed to a government which held such differing views to his own? In the eyes of the prince, Bismarck continued, still analysing Prince Albert, I was a reactionary party man who took up sides for Russia in order to further an absolutist and younger policy. It was not to be wondered at this view of the princes and of the then partisans of the Duke of Coburg. Just to interject, Coburg was the name of Prince Albert's German house, 
and it was then the designation given to Britain's royal family until the First World War, of course, when it was changed to Windsor, because that sounded less German. Bismarck adds that the partisans of the Duke of Coburg had descended to the prince's daughter, who shortly after became crown princess. We've covered this before, but it's worthwhile reminding us again, because this was the last episode. The Crown Princess of Britain, also called Victoria, we're going to call her Victoria Junior to make things a bit simpler, she arrived in early 1858 to marry Prince Frederick of Prussia, and it was their union which produced the more infamous progeny of Kaiser Wilhelm II. Bismarck maintains, with good reason, that the Crown Prince and the Crown Princess never liked him. And Victoria Jr. in particular saw in Bismarck a reactionary vassal of Russia, which was then Britain's sworn enemy. She had just fought against her in the Crimean War, after all. This impression had likely been imprinted by Albert, Victoria Jr.'s father, although Queen Victoria was not much warmer to Otto when they met in person. At that ball at Versailles, Queen Victoria spoke to me in German, Bismarck wrote, adding... She gave me the impression of beholding in me a noteworthy but unsympathetic personality, but still her tone of voice was without that touch of ironical superiority that I thought I detected in Prince Albert's. She continued to be amiable and courteous, like one unwilling to treat an eccentric fellow in an unfriendly way. This is one of the other things I love about Bismarck's story. It's how often he crisscrosses into the lives and stories of other really famous figures from the period. And it's hard to find a more famous figure from this period than Queen Victoria. It is fascinating to see how people like these rubbed off against each other. Similar to what we said about Bismarck meeting Metternich. You'd imagine that sparks would be flying with such important people being in the same room at the same time. But it's also interesting to imagine what Victoria and Albert actually made of this eccentric, driven, ambitious and perhaps just a little bit arrogant Prussian Junker. Okay, a lot arrogant, but let's give him some breaks where we can. Having dealt with a plethora of self-important courtiers in Britain and elsewhere, the young royal British couple probably gave their best impression of patience and tolerance, completely unaware, of course, that within a decade, this self-important, determined man would stand atop the Prussian government, and soon thereafter, atop the German state. Bismarck hadn't massively impressed the British royals then, but this wasn't too big a deal, because Bismarck hadn't gone to Paris to see Victoria and Albert, he had gone to sound out Napoleon, and he had actually used this exhibition only as a cover. This was all part and parcel of his anti-Austrian policy. He wanted to meet with a potential ally in Napoleon III, and see what this French emperor's inclinations were, and whether Prussia could make use of Napoleon's nephew. It was a cold, calculated act of political espionage, making use of the excuse of the exhibition in Paris to get as close to Napoleon as possible. And again, we're confronted with a fascinating scene. These two figures, Bismarck and Napoleon III, would meet several times, but probably their most famous meeting was just after the Battle of Sedan, when the French emperor was forced to surrender thereby ending his regime and crowning Bismarck's Franco-Prussian War with glory. Most of us know that in 1870, Bismarck goaded France into making war on Prussia, and thanks to that war, Bismarck was able to unify Germany under Prussian leadership. But what most of us do not know is that these two figures had met several times beforehand 
and had actually established a pretty reasonable relationship, all things considered. Something which really emerges from this period, though, is Bismarck's lack of any real attachment or respect to most of these figures that he met. With Napoleon III, for example, this French emperor was useful for the moment, because on Bismarck's immediate horizon was the mission of tackling Austria, and the best way to tackle Austria was to make sure that France wasn't going to intervene, or if she was, that she'd intervene on Prussia's side. In fact, Bismarck would establish a good enough rapport with Napoleon III that this same Napoleon III must have wondered by the late 1860s where his old friend Otto von Bismarck had actually gone. Unfortunately for Napoleon, and Bismarck probably would have told him this if they'd ever spoken this frankly, it was just business, it wasn't personal, and according to Bismarck, his business was making Prussia as great as possible. It didn't matter who he had to roll over in order to get there, he would roll over you if you were in his way. Of course, there was no indication at this early stage that Bismarck would later break the French emperor's heart. At this point, what Bismarck needed was to use France as leverage against the Austrians, so that he could put across the impression that he wanted Prussia and France to be best of friends. As soon as being best of friends with France was no longer necessary, though, as we said, Bismarck would demonstrate a breathtaking lack of consideration for Napoleon III and his regime. But in this first proper meeting with Napoleon III, Bismarck proved remarkably adept at getting to the root of who this man was, who was Napoleon III. According to Bismarck's own record anyway, Napoleon assured him that France and Prussia were as close as they could be to natural allies. In further conversations, it seemed only to confirm Bismarck's intentions to use Napoleon to Prussia's advantage, and he would harness the lessons learned in his meetings with Napoleon to try and lay down his political and strategic manifesto and letters to his mentor, Leopold von Gerlach, the long-suffering conservative younger statesman and military official, who in many ways was responsible for the beginnings of Bismarck's political career, and was now doomed to endure a long, long correspondence over the next several decades. In winter 1855, then in the presence of the Prussian king Frederick William, Bismarck was asked for his views on Napoleon by the king himself. This was a significant event because clearly Frederick William knew that Bismarck had gone to Paris, as of course he would because he had to keep tabs on all of his officials. But he also would have known, or at least he would have suspected, that Bismarck's reasoning for going to Paris hadn't been wholly to take in the sights of that grand exhibition. The political wheels of Bismarck were always turning, and perhaps Frederick William hoped to gain some insight, some record of what Bismarck had seen. It is my impression, Bismarck declared to his king, that the Emperor Napoleon is a discreet and amiable man, but that he is not so clever as the world esteems him. The world places to his account everything that happens, and if it rains in Eastern Asia at an unseasonable moment, chooses to attribute to it some malevolent machination of the Emperor. Here especially we have become accustomed to regard him as a kind of genius, who is forever only mediating how to do mischief in the world. I believe he is happy when he is able to enjoy anything good at his ease. His understanding is overrated at the expense of his heart. He is, at bottom, good-natured, and has an unusual measure of gratitude for every service rendered him. This was the account which Bismarck gave of Napoleon to his king in late 1855. But you might observe from this that it doesn't sound 
particularly good. It sounds on the one hand like Bismarck was saying that Napoleon was a good person, but not an effective emperor. In my view, it sounds like Bismarck was reviewing an applicant for a job instead of providing a judgment on one of the most powerful absolutist rulers in the world at the time. At its core, though, this judgment from Bismarck was sympathetic, and it was nowhere close to the alarmist interpretations which many had drawn from Napoleon III. These alarmist interpretations included claims that he was going to break and remake the world as his uncle, Napoleon Bonaparte, had done. The more extreme views of Napoleon III and the reactionary intentions which were attributed to him seemed, to Bismarck, an unnecessary barricade against a sensible Prussian policy. Bismarck had left Paris impressed with French culture and the splendour of Paris, but he was also more convinced than ever of the need to approach France and make sure that Austria knew it, even if no alliance was the result. Having options, Bismarck insisted, was the best that Prussia could do now, and he believed this even more so when the peace negotiations for the Crimean War seemed to result in Prussia towing the Austrian line, a humiliation for sure, rather than being seen to stand on her own two feet. If nothing was done, then Bismarck believed, soon enough, the impression across the world would be that Prussia was little more than a vassal state of Vienna, and that Prussia could be expected to fall in line with whatever policy the Austrians adhered to. The newly hostile Russia threw a wrench in this idea, because the new Tsar, Alexander II, was clearly resentful of Vienna, and he was more resentful of Vienna than he was of Berlin. But it was still important, Bismarck believed, for Prussia to be seen to act independently. Because of the complications and results of the Crimean War, Bismarck also believed in something quite interesting. He believed in a looming Franco-Russian alliance to be directed against the Austrians. He also believed that if this alliance did come to pass, then Prussia should join it. While in summer 1855 France and Russia had still been at war, Bismarck insisted that he gleaned the impression from different Parisians and others that the Crimean War was unpopular and that Frenchmen generally had no hatred for the Russian Empire. After the first few salvos were fired and the defeats of 1812 were kind of erased away by those little successes, Frenchmen kind of bored of the Crimean War and wanted to turn their attentions instead to the British or to the Austrians. Thus, the time was soon ripe for a revolution in diplomacy, a revolution which Bismarck genuinely believed was in the offing. He thought that an announcement would soon be made to this effect. Napoleon's wide ambition but lack of options in the current format of international relations, Bismarck insisted, made this revolution essential. If Napoleon didn't find a way to link up with Russia and direct his attentions against the Austrians, then all of Napoleon III's other plans would be for naught. Not so, insisted Bismarck's superiors, and here's the crux of the issue. This is where we get down to the juicy parts of this story, because here we see Bismarck not just as someone who's opposing his superiors, but as someone who in the end proved to be right. Prussia did gain an immense amount at Austria's expense by playing off Austria's neighbours against her, and by playing up to the idea that Prussia might soon join with these disgruntled neighbours of the Austrians. This was a genius policy, but it was also, and Bismarck wanted to stress this, one of the key core elements of diplomacy, that you emphasise your state's interest above all. In Bismarck's mind, this didn't seem to be happening in Berlin. His superiors were still constrained by old ideas, 
old ideas of loyalty to Vienna due to some vague concept of German commonality, or fears of the French as some revolutionary race who could never be trusted no matter what. The fact that Bismarck so clashed with his superiors and just never saw eye to eye to them while he was under their remit tells us an awful lot about the struggle which he later pursued when he was in power. When he was then free from these superiors, Bismarck essentially went nuts. It might explain why he accomplished so much in nine years. It's not just that he had the energy, intelligence and ambition to do so, but that, having been held down for so long, he now took it upon himself to accomplish all that had been denied him in the past. He was making up for lost time, in other words. But in the year of 1855, none of this was yet apparent to Bismarck. All he knew was that the ideas he had and the way that he saw the world was completely different to how his superiors saw it. France, according to these superiors, was the ultimate foe of Prussian Junkers and of Prussian culture generally, and Napoleon III was no different from his revolutionary father, in that he intended to transform Europe in a revolutionary image, thus threatening the status quo, which had been established with so much blood, so much Prussian blood, from 1813. Austria was by no means a perfect friend, Bismarck's superiors said, and she had acted against Prussian interests before, but Austria, along with Russia in that holy alliance, was at least a traditionalist conservative power, and didn't threaten the old order. Furthermore, the Austrians were German people, and to side against these Germans alongside the French seemed anathema to all true Junkers. There was also some amount of doubt, well-founded as it turned out, that as hard as the Prussian king might find it to imagine teaming up with France, the still more conservative Tsar would be even less likely to join hands with Napoleon III. To this, Bismarck would have argued that the reforms underway in Russia made it seem more rather than less likely that Russia would seek foreign friends and that a deal with Napoleon could secure the Tsar from several angles. Again, these ideas fell on deaf ears, so Bismarck decided to do some field research once again. Two years after visiting Paris for the first time, in March 1857, Bismarck went back to Paris again, this time as a negotiator in a dispute between Prussia and Switzerland, which we don't really need to get into here, but all you need to know is that Bismarck had an official reason for going to Paris, but once again, just like his official reason from two years before, he was really going there and he had asked to go there to meet again with Napoleon III. The dispute between Prussia and Switzerland was being mediated in Paris, and this was ideal for Bismarck because it gave him yet another chance to get to grips with Napoleon III's character. Unlike their first meeting two years before, now the two men had actual time to talk to each other, and they really did seem to click. According to Bismarck, at least, Napoleon III regarded him as something of a rising star, and as a statesman who was soon to hold considerable power in Berlin. How convenient that this gelled with exactly how Bismarck saw his own future going in Prussia. But because of this impression which Napoleon III had, he would have believed that Bismarck could be useful to him. Make friends with this rising Prussian star now, and in the future, you could lean on this Prussian figure when he's in power, and the interests of France could be increased. This was no different a policy to what Bismarck intended to do, relying on relationships and connections to get his own way. Bismarck says that he ensured Napoleon had no illusions in this regard, and that there was no way, no matter what happened, Bismarck would serve French interests. But we imagine that he would have done little to dissuade Napoleon from thinking thoughts which might have benefited him. 
It was unfair, Napoleon said, that foreign observers accused France of coveting the left bank of the Rhine. Such an expansion would add millions of foreign subjects to the French realm, and this could only be secured with further expansion into the Low Countries, which would obviously arouse foreign condemnation. And thus, Napoleon III said, France couldn't move in this direction at all. What Bismarck says happened next, though, is of great interest, considering what transpired within a few years. Bismarck wrote that Napoleon said to him, Perhaps in certain circumstances, to soothe national French pride, I will desire a small rectification of the frontiers, but I will be able to live without it. Bismarck then adds that Napoleon intimated to him the following juicy and very relevant nugget. If he, Napoleon III, should need a war, he would prefer to seek it in the direction of Italy. Yet on the one hand, that country had always had a great affinity with France. On the other, the latter was rich enough in land power and in victories by land. As the result of a war in the near future, Napoleon III contemplated for Italy a condition of intimacy and dependence towards France, and for himself, perhaps, the acquisition of a few points on the coast. It formed part of this programme that Prussia should not be opposed to France. France and Prussia supplement one another. Napoleon considered it a mistake that Prussia in 1806 did not side with Napoleon like other German powers. It was desirable to consolidate our territory by the acquisition of Hanover and the Elbe duchies, and thus lay the foundation for a stronger Prussian navy. There was a lack of maritime powers of the second rank, who by the union of their active forces with those of the French, might put an end to the present oppressive preponderance, on sea, of England. There could be no danger therein, either to them or to the rest of Europe, because they would be by no means taking part in one-sided selfish undertakings of the French, but only in freeing the seas from the preponderance of England. Napoleon's first wish was to secure the neutrality of Prussia in the event of his incurring a war with Austria on account of Italy. I might sound the king about all this. Indeed, this spiel, which Bismarck records Napoleon III as saying, was certainly something that King Frederick William would be interested in. But would the king actually go for it? Would the king, having seen this evidence, decide that teaming up with France was a good idea after all? Furthermore, would Prussia go even further than this? Would they decide to take over those Elbe duchies and build a fleet to contest the supremacy of the seas with the British? This would certainly have been Napoleon's dream, But what would Frederick William do as King of Prussia? Bismarck, although he was revolutionary in diplomacy, he didn't think that his king would go for it, and he told Napoleon III this. Napoleon thanked him for his frankness, and the two parted on good terms, with very little indication of the storm which was to come. Following this visit, Bismarck engaged in arguably one of his most important exercises. He wrote down, in as clear a manner as we might hope, how he viewed the world and Prussia's options within it. Bismarck had to rally against the norms of Prussian conservatism, but he also had to fight against ideas of legitimacy, a concept which insisted that Napoleon's regime now and his uncles beforehand were illegitimate, and that dealing with Napoleon III would compel other revolutionary movements to spring up. This was the great fear and the great criticism which was directed by conservatives in Prussia and elsewhere against France. The idea being that having established his regime in times of crisis and controversially, 
Napoleon III's regime was illegitimate and wasn't legally entitled to be treated with on the same basis as the British or Russian, etc., etc. Bismarck tried to fight against these ideas by arguing, reasonably enough, that all regimes were established through some kind of revolution and some form of violence, and that the negative impact of working with Napoleon was seriously exaggerated. Bismarck was then accused of sacrificing his principles, a charge which he denied. But all in all, these disagreements over the best future policy for Prussia, and where Prussia's best interests lay, moved Bismarck to return to a correspondence with Leopold von Gerlach, his mentor. Thus, in the spring of 1857, while Bismarck was in Frankfurt having returned from Paris, he articulated his views and his vision, and as a result, in this correspondence, were left with a fascinating series of declarations and assertions, which amounted really to a manifesto of how Bismarck viewed foreign policy at the time. These letters were written five and a half years before Bismarck would be made minister-president, but they show what kind of revolutionary ideas Bismarck intended to apply to Prussian diplomacy, and what this would mean were he ever permitted to reach these pinnacles of power. In spite of what Bismarck might have claimed at this point, he was very far away indeed from any ministerial post, and a great reason for this wasn't just his youth or his lack of experience, but the fact that he held views which were so at odds with what the majority in Berlin thought. To fully grasp Bismarck's character and motives during this time, and appreciate why the way he saw the world was so radical, it's worth delving into this correspondence between Bismarck and Gerlach now. For the record, Bismarck gives them significant space in his memoirs. They take up nearly 30 pages, despite the correspondence itself running for only two months in May and in June 1857. We're going to do our best to analyse these revolutionary letters, wherein Bismarck's thesis for running Prussian foreign policy was laid down in its clearest, starkest form yet. We'll also do our best to analyse this correspondence without it seeming like just a recap of what the two men wrote. I do think that the contents of these letters make reading them out here worthwhile. You'd be hard-pressed to find another occasion where Bismarck lets loose his beliefs and vision without fear of censorship or consequence. After all, here he was writing to his old friend and mentor, so there wasn't much chance of him getting in trouble. For better or worse, Bismarck felt like he had to share his views. After all, he'd seen in Paris and what he'd felt during the Crimean War and while working in Frankfurt. Now that he was armed with his first-hand experience of the French Emperor, could he persuade a dyed-in-the-wool conservative Junker like Leopold von Gerlach to see sense? Let's find out for ourselves. Much as I agree with you in regard to internal policy, I can enter but little into your conception of foreign policy, which I find fault with in general because it ignores the reality of things. This was the beginning of a letter that Bismarck sent from Frankfurt on the 2nd of May, 1857. And for the next 10 pages of his memoirs, yes, this was a very large letter, Bismarck expresses the fundamental tenets of his vision for Prussian foreign policy, saying, France interests me only insofar as she reacts upon the condition of my country, and we can only deal politically with the France that exists, and this France we cannot exclude from the combinations. A legitimate monarch like Louis XIV is just as hostile an element as Napoleon I. France counts for me, without regard to the person at its head for the time being, merely as a piece, though an unavoidable one, in the game of political chess, 
a game in which I am called upon to serve only my own king and my own country. I cannot feel it right, either in myself or in others, that sympathies and antipathies with regard to foreign powers and persons should take precedence over my sense of duty in the foreign service of my country. Such an idea contains the embryo of disloyalty to the ruler or to the country which we serve. But especially if anyone wants to cut his standing diplomatic relations and the maintenance of our understanding in time of peace after this pattern, he immediately ceases to be a politician and acts according to his personal caprice. In my opinion, not even the king has the right to subordinate the interests of the country to his own feelings of love or hate towards foreigners, but if he does so, he is responsible to God and not to me, and therefore I am silent on that point. What are we to make of a statement like this? And even though it was a letter, it really was a statement of how Bismarck saw the world and what he intended to do. Well, we can see first and foremost that Bismarck was renouncing ideology here. Any ideas or principles which might get in the way of a free hand in foreign policy, Bismarck thought that that was a bad idea. In order to deal with the France that existed, you had to put aside your reservations about how Napoleon III got to where he was now. Bismarck saw it all as political chess. It was a metaphor he used many times. But here, he even urged the king to put the country first. Now, because he was writing to Gerlach, he probably suspected Gerlach wouldn't communicate this to the king. So Bismarck was safe enough to put this idea forward. In Bismarck's mind, the king should put the country first. And the best way to do that was to take advantage of the circumstances as they stood. Even if that meant siding with France, unpalatable as it might be, Bismarck believed that the king was supposed to put the country above everything, even such unpalatable decisions as siding with the nephew of the man who had once ruined Prussia. It was time to move on, Bismarck effectively said, and it was time to realise that there were more important things going on in the world than how Junkers felt about Napoleon III. Although France seemed to be going back in time, Bismarck wanted to emphasise this was not the Napoleonic Wars Part 2. It was a very different situation altogether. And there was no reason why Prussia couldn't take advantage of this developing situation. It was to be expected that Leopold von Gerlach might challenge these views, but Bismarck addressed him directly as well. He didn't shy away from challenging his old mentor. Maybe Gerlach was unhappy because Bismarck was moving on from the idea that Prussia would always be an enemy of France, Bismarck wanted to know if Gerlach was aware that, in France, they didn't view Prussia as an enemy. Why should Prussia thus cut itself off from France? It wasn't due to hard feelings on the French side, and Napoleon evidently wanted to make use of a Prussian relationship as well. Bismarck then proclaimed to Gerlach that he didn't have all the answers, but that even the theory of international relations dictated that all options should be kept open, and all opportunities for advancement in the state should be when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Realized, he continued in his letter, I do not wish to pretend that I know how to return Prussia to predominance, such as she enjoyed before 1848, but there is no doubt much in this. We have no alliances and carry out no foreign policy, that is, not actively, but we contend ourselves with picking up the stones that fall into our garden and brushing off, as well as we can, the mud that is flung at us. When I speak of alliances, I do not mean alliances offensive and defensive, for peace is not yet imperiled. All the shades, however, of possibility, probability, or purpose, in the event of war, of concluding this or that alliance, of belonging to this or that group, still forms the basis of such influence as a state can at the present day wield in time of peace. Whichever finds itself in the combination that is weaker in the event of a war is inclined to be more yielding. Whichever completely isolates itself renounces influence, especially if it be the weakest among the great powers. Alliances are the expression of common interests and purposes. Whether we have any purposes or conscious aims at all in our policy at this moment, I do not know, but that we have interests, others will remind us fast enough. Yet up to the present, we have the probability of an alliance only with those whose interests most traverse and contradict ours, that is, with the German states and Austria. If we desire to regard our foreign policy as being limited to that, then we must become accustomed to the idea of seeing our European influence reduced in times of peace to a 17th part of the voices of the smaller council in the Confederation, and in the event of war, of remaining behind by ourselves in the Taxi's palace with the federal constitution in our hand. Bismarck draws on another point here, which he was to wax and wane on in the future. This idea that not only was friendship with Austria not ideal and wouldn't get Prussia what she wanted, but friendship with the German Confederation, in other words with all those minor German states, wasn't necessarily the best path for Prussian predominance either. After all, each of these German states would in their own way try and contest the idea that Prussia had some kind of right to dominate. So rather than try and deal with them in a nice or diplomatic way, Prussia should look further afield ignoring the inclinations and fears of those minor German states, which could then be used against those same German states in the future. Bismarck was arguing here for a kind of policy of manipulation, of scaremongering, but it wasn't all that different to what he had argued for before. 
One of Prussia's greatest assets was that she was free enough to make such deals with foreign powers. Bismarck believed, and he believed this emphatically, that Prussia should use every single means at her disposal. This included, surprising, perhaps not what you would call traditional alliances, but also alliances that would be powerful, which would increase her influence and leverage her position. Otherwise, in wartime, Prussia would find that she had far fewer options, and the world would regard her as only an Austrian tool if she didn't act on her own initiative, and if she wasn't seen to act outside the Austrian or German sphere. Having already touched on the idea that working with the German states or working with Austria wasn't going to help Prussia all that much, Bismarck delved more into this idea. He explained how Austria and the smaller German states weren't just less than ideal as potential partners, they were also more likely than any other actors to work against Prussia's interest. Thus, replacements or additional friends would have to be found. Prussia could never be secure, Bismarck said, if it maintained a solely German focus. He continued his correspondence. I ask you whether there is a cabinet in Europe which has a more innate and natural interest than that of Vienna in preventing Prussia from growing stronger and in lessening her influence in Germany. Whether there is a cabinet which pursues this design more zealously and cleverly, which on the whole takes more coolly and cynically its own interests alone as a guide for its policy, and which has given us, the Russians and the Western powers, more numerous and striking proofs of perfidy and untrustworthiness as a member of the same federation. Does Austria in any way stick at entering into any foreign alliance that is to her advantage and openly threatening even members of the German Federation on the strength of such relations? Do you consider the Emperor, Francis Joseph, to be in general of a nature to make sacrifices or to yield, and with regard to non-Austrian interests in particular? Having criticised not just the Austrians and the German states, but also the idea that the Germanies were somehow all in this together and that state interests didn't matter, Bismarck then moved to attack the very notion that all German states would work for the good of Prussia, or that Prussia was somehow a natural ally of these German states. How many of those same states, Bismarck asked, with some justification, truly wanted to see a powerful Prussia, and how many would sacrifice all that much to defend Prussia in the event of war launched not against the traditional, predictable, revolutionary French enemy, but in the name of some German interests, or of Prussian interests. Bismarck continued, I continue my questions, and beg that you will not put me off with an evasive reply. Are there, besides the Austrian, any governments which feel less of a call to do something for Prussia than the German middle states? In times of peace, they feel the necessity of playing some part in the Bund and in the Zollverein of making their sovereignty a perceptible force on our frontiers, while in war their conduct towards us is regulated by fear or mistrust, and no angel can talk the distrust out of them so long as there exist maps at which they can cast a glance. And now another question. Do you believe, and does His Majesty the King still really believe, in the German Confederation and its army in the event of war? I do not mean in the event of a French revolutionary war against Germany in league with Russia, but in a war of interests in which Germany, Prussia and Austria will have to stand on their own legs. If you believe in it, I cannot, of course, go on with the discussion, for our premises would be too divergent. 
What, however, could justify you in the belief that the Grand Dukes of Baden and Darmstadt, the King of Württemberg or Bavaria, would play Leonidas for Prussia and Austria when the superiority of forces is not on the side of these powers and no one has the slightest ground for believing in unity and confidence between them? Indeed, there was little chance that any of the German states, high on ideas of all-German culture, would stand at Thermopylae and defend Prussian ground to the last man. Prussia would have to rely on its own power to defend itself, and beyond that, to look to equally self-interested allies who had a vested interest in seeing Prussia be strong. Due to its strategic interests in keeping Austria down, France would surely want this turn of events to take place. France would surely want Prussia to be strong, so surely France was the natural choice as ally. We should play France off against Austria. We should use French support to our advantage, Bismarck said in effect. Alternatively, Bismarck said, the choice was between one of continued isolation or of kowtowing to Austria's every desire. He continued, If we desire to go on living in such isolation, unheeded and occasionally bullied, I have of course no power to change it. If, however, we desire to come once more into consideration, we cannot possibly attain that aim by building our foundation solely on the sand of the German Confederation and calmly waiting its collapse. As long as each of us is convinced that a portion of the European chessboard will remain closed against us by our own choice, or that we must tie up one arm on principle while everyone else employs both of his to our disadvantage, this sentimentality of ours will be turned to account without fear and without thanks. Again, this is classic Bismarck rallying against the idea that principles like opposing a neighbouring power simply because they have a different government to yours or refusing to deal with someone because they have a leader you don't like. These ideas, Bismarck said, closed the European chessboard to Prussian diplomacy. And if this was what Berlin had in mind, then the king may as well send the bulk of his diplomatic corps home. Because what could these individuals, talented though they were, hope to accomplish against the prevailing mood of intolerance and intransigence which King Frederick William seemed to support? Bismarck wasn't done yet, though. He now decided to go on a bit of a rant about Austria's lack of good faith displayed towards Prussia, comparing Austria to an unfaithful wife who had been tolerated for far too long. Bismarck continued, If we wish not to hear laughter when we speak of Austria's help in any matter of importance to ourselves, we must go to Berlin. And even in Berlin, I know only a proportionately very small circle in which a feeling of bitterness will not betray itself as soon as our foreign policy is mentioned. Our prescription for every evil is to throw ourselves upon the neck of Count Buell, the Austrian minister-president, and to pour out our brotherly heart to him. When I was in Paris, a certain Count sued for a divorce after having caught his wife, formerly a circus writer, in the course of an affair for the 24th time. He was held up to the admiration of the court by his lawyer as an example of a gallant and indulgent husband, but his magnanimity is not compared with ours in regard to Austria. This might seem a bit over the top as a comparison. After all, had Austria really betrayed Prussia's trust 24 times, as that unfaithful wife was reported to have done? Perhaps not, but 
Bismarck wasn't speaking into the wind here. He was trying to persuade his mentor, Gerdak, that the time had come to see France, Austria, and Prussia's position in the world differently. Otherwise, Bismarck insisted, Berlin would never move on from its current state as a regional German power, a second Vienna, obediently tugging along the Habsburg flag at a moment's notice. And because Bismarck was writing to Gerdach here, he did take the time to address and even to challenge his mentor directly. You, my most respected friend, are well acquainted with our policy. Can you name a single aim that our politicians have set themselves, or even a plan followed for a few months? Even granted a position of affairs, do they know what they really want? Is there anyone in Berlin with that knowledge? And do you think that a like void of positive aims and ideas is to be found in the leaders of any other state? Can you, moreover, name a single ally upon whom Prussia could count if war came this very day, or who would speak in our behalf in matters that touch us nearly, or would do anything, whatever for us, either because he reckons upon our support or fears our hostility? We are the best-natured and most harmless of politicians, and yet no one in reality trusts us. We are regarded as unsafe allies and harmless foes, precisely as if we behaved like Austria in foreign affairs, and were as rotten at home. We shall amicably allow ourselves to be stripped of the Zollverein by Austria, because we have not the resolution to simply say no. I am surprised that we still possess diplomatists, in whom the courage to hold an idea or the ambition to achieve something is not dead already, and I shall be just as content as the rest of my colleagues with simply executing my instructions, attending the sittings, and divesting myself of any interest in the general progress of our policy. This is better for one's health, and one wastes less ink. This almost sounded like Bismarck was despairing of Prussia's official policy or lack thereof, and that he was throwing in the towel. But looks could be deceiving. Bismarck was here only being dramatic. It was simply not within him to behave as he described in those final sentences, just carrying on with his duties and obediently obeying whatever orders came through from Berlin. As this letter made clear, whether it saved ink or saved his health or whether it did neither of those things, Bismarck felt that he had to speak his mind no matter what. By laying this out for Gerlach, Bismarck also showed that he wasn't privy to discussions taking place in Berlin where Prussian policy was being developed. In spite of his appearance of having influence, and our assumption that a man like Bismarck would surely be regularly consulted, at this point of his life, in May 1857, Bismarck wasn't considered important enough to include in those conversations held at the upper level of Prussian government, where real decisions on foreign policy would be made. For that reason, Bismarck could conclude to Gerlach that I do not know whether the government has a plan, with which I am unacquainted. I do not think so. If, however, we repel the diplomatic advances of a great power, only on account of antipathies or sympathies for conditions and persons which we cannot and would not alter, and if we regulate our political relations with two other great powers on the same basis, then I am within the mark if I say that, as a diplomatist, I do not comprehend this, and consider that with the adoption of such a system in foreign relations, the whole profession of diplomacy, down to the consular service, is superfluous and practically cashiered. You tell me that the man, Napoleon III, is our natural enemy and that it will soon be proved he is so and must remain so. I could dispute this or say with equal justice, Austria, England are our enemies and that they are so has long been proved, naturally in the case of Austria, unnaturally in that of England. 
but I will let that rest as it is, and assuming that your contentions were correct, I cannot even regard it as politique, while peace still exists, to betray our apprehensions to others and to France herself. But I consider it expedient, until the breach foreseen by you really occurs, to go on allowing people to believe that we are not necessarily doomed to a war sooner or later with France. That it is at least nothing inseparable from the position of Prussia, and that the tension with regard to France is not an organic defect, an innate weakness of our nature upon which everyone else can speculate with safety. As soon as we are thought to be on cool terms with France, my federal German colleagues here will cool towards me. This extract is again very important, because Bismarck wasn't just stating that an alliance with France could be useful, he was also insisting that leading other states to believe that France and Prussia were negotiating towards this end would be useful. This was a new level of what would come to be known as Realpolitik, which Bismarck was later to hone in on. And as if to spell it out at the end, Bismarck explained that once it was known that Prussia was out of step with France, the German states and Austria herself were less likely to fear what Prussia was capable of, since after all, they understood Prussia to now be on her own. But imagine, Bismarck said, if this impression could be expelled, and it could be somewhat uncertain whether France and Prussia would come to some agreement. Bismarck maintained that a wealth of options would be open to Prussia which wouldn't have been there otherwise. This was the first of many letters between the mentor and the student, but we don't have to continue quoting from them here, or we'd be here all day as we went down that rabbit hole. Gerdach, for his part, didn't contest the idea that Austria wasn't looking out for Prussia's interests. In other words, he agreed with Bismarck on seeing Austria as a competitor for Prussia's position. But he challenged Bismarck also by noting that France hardly cared for Prussia either. He mounted a serious challenge to Bismarck's presentation of Napoleon III as docile, harmless and essentially the same as any other potential ally. Napoleon, Gerlach asserted, was a child of the revolution, and if Bismarck was an enemy of the French Revolution, which all Junkers were assumed to be, then Bismarck would do well to remember that fact. The two men essentially went around in circles for the next two months, as Bismarck insisted Napoleon wasn't a revolutionary zealot and was only interested in bettering France, but Gerlach insisted Napoleon was that zealot and that Bismarck shouldn't underestimate him. Perhaps because we know that Bismarck would destroy Napoleon's regime within 15 years, reading this correspondence is especially fascinating, particularly to note the amount of foreshadowing, a common pattern in Bismarck's life at this point. On one occasion, Gerlach asks Bismarck how long he believes Napoleon III will rule for, obviously unaware, as Bismarck surely was at this point, that one day Otto von Bismarck would answer that question definitively, and the answer to the question of how long Napoleon III would rule would be just shy of 18 years. Demonstrating an understanding of Napoleon's character which would later prove correct, Bismarck explained to Gerlach that the French Emperor's resolution, ideology and policy were all relatively straightforward, and that his position was somewhat weaker in France than others might believe. Now I know we've quoted an awful lot from these letters already, but I do feel that these primary sources are very important to give us an inside window on what Bismarck actually thought. There isn't too many more of these quotes to come, but I'm sure you'll agree that the juiciness of this correspondence is also worth quoting from, so we're going to do so again. Bismarck wrote that, 
The impulse for conquest does not seem to dominate Napoleon III as an instinct. He is no captain, and in a war on a great scale with big results or risks, the eyes of the French army, the prop of his sovereignty, could hardly fail to turn to a fortunate general rather than to the emperor. He will therefore only seek war when he believes himself compelled to it by dangers at home. A compulsion of this kind would, however, exist from the outset for the legitimate king of France if he now came to the throne. Neither the remembrance of his uncle's passion for conquest nor the fact of his unrighteous origin of his power justifies me, therefore, in regarding the present emperor of the French as the sole representative of the revolution and as an object to be singled out in the fight against this revolution. This again was Bismarck's attempt to rally against Gerlach's views of Napoleon, but judging by Gerlach's reply it had little effect. Bismarck and Gerlach were bound to see things differently, a fact which contributed to their gradual falling out by the late 1860s. Thus, Bismarck would move on from the Gerlach brothers, the duo who had proved so pivotal in his entrance into politics. For Bismarck, it was evidently more important to put Prussia, and thus his own career, before such relationships. He could not mindlessly support his mentor when he patently disagreed with him on so many things. Finally, and this is our last extract from these letters, I swears, we look at an extract from early June 1857, where Bismarck puts forward what amounts to his manifesto regarding Austria and the German Confederation. Both issues, Bismarck insisted, limited Prussia's options and therefore limited Prussia's power, and alternative measures for increasing both of these attributes. Prussia's options and Prussia's power would have to be sought if the Prussian state was not to be set into terminal decline. Bismarck wrote, You say that France will not do more for us than Austria and the Middle German states. My belief is that no one does anything for us, unless he can at the same time serve his interests. The direction, however, in which Austria and the Middle German states at present pursue, their interests are quite incompatible with the tasks which are vital questions for Prussia, and a common policy is quite impossible until Austria adopts a discreeter system towards us, of which there is so far little prospect. You agree with me that we must show the small German states the superiority of Prussia, but what means have we for doing so inside the Act of Confederation? Little can be done when we have but one voice among 17 other German states and Austria against us. This is another important fact of the era, and it's one we've touched on several times. Bismarck didn't just see friendship with Austria, or trying to get on good terms with Austria, as limiting Prussia's options. Bismarck also saw Prussia's membership of the German Confederation, and her need to be on good terms with those other German states, as a hindrance to Prussian expansion and domination of Germany. Bismarck thought that Prussia was limited by the current system she was in, and the only way to improve her position was to break out of these systems, or to break them full stop if they couldn't be escaped from. By having access to more options, Bismarck thought this could be done, and he had now convinced himself so that nothing would change his mind. At the end of the final letter from Leopold von Gerlach, Bismarck notes in the margin, I had no reasons for continuing by a reply this correspondence, being aimless in itself. Indeed, it was aimless for Bismarck to consider Austria and the German Confederation anything other than constraints on Prussia's power, or tools which should be used to Prussia's advantage if she had more options and leverage. Either way, from this correspondence we can see in Bismarck's mind that something would have to change, and Bismarck himself 
evidently wanted to be the agent of that change. It just seemed that at this point in his life, people weren't quite ready for this. When the Crimean War ended, it was kind of hard to ignore the fact that there seemed to be a lot of rumours swirling around. A few of these rumours were not all that important, but one of them in particular had serious significance. It was a rumour which suggested, in 1856, that Manteuffel and the King were both considering Bismarck for some ministerial post. This rumour to us might seem even more significant than it actually was. Oh my goodness, we might say, here is clear foreshadowing that Bismarck was tipped for success from an early stage. But in actual fact, this idea that Manteuffel and King Frederick William were actively considering the upstart reactionary Junker in Bismarck for a ministerial post wasn't just a familiar rumour, it was also a pretty unfounded rumour as well. This didn't mean that Bismarck had never crossed the king's mind as a potential minister, but certainly at this stage in his life, he was not at all ready. How realistic was it that the hesitant king was going to appoint such a reactionary, and by all accounts, such an unliked figure, into the government? Not to mention the fact that, compared to his peers, Bismarck was still very inexperienced. And lest we forget, his contrarian views, especially when it came to foreign policy, had mostly alienated him from the traditional cabal at the centre of Prussian government. But Bismarck was lucky in that he had one thing on his side, his undeniable talent for diplomacy and for advancing Prussian interests. In spite of his inexperience, you see, having spent just over five years in his proper position in Frankfurt at this stage, Bismarck had made something of a name for himself, both in the Prussian government and in the other German foreign courts where he frequently travelled to. Remember, from the very moment Bismarck had spoken, a decade before, he had distinguished himself as dynamic, as a capable speaker, and as someone with a rare spark, for lack of a better term. This spark can't have been ignored by the king, but until Bismarck was confirmed as minister-president in autumn 1862, so we're only in 1856 now and we still have a good bit to go, Bismarck would have to grapple repeatedly with these rumours, as the indecisive Prussian kings, Frederick William and his younger brother Wilhelm, were pretty similar in this respect. They always had the last word on these appointments, even though they never seemed to be able to make up their mind who they wanted to stand in these appointments. At this stage in his life, Bismarck had met Napoleon III twice, and at both times he had made a pretty good impression. His sympathy for France, at least compared to his peers, led to his reputation as something of a Bonapartist, but Bismarck explicitly rejected this label, and it was one he would fight against until he became more secure in his position in 1862. If nothing else, this surely recommended Bismarck to serve as the ambassador to France once his stint in Frankfurt ran out. 1857 was destined to be a busy year. He had visited Paris earlier in March, and by August, Bismarck was visiting another European dynasty that he would later humble, the Danes. I took advantage of the recess and the federal diet to make a hunting excursion into Denmark and Sweden, Bismarck explains, adding that on the 6th of August 1857, Bismarck enjoyed an audience with the King of Denmark. He received me, Bismarck recorded, in a uniform with his helmet on, and entertained me with exaggerated sketches of his experiences in various battles and sieges at which he had never been present. 
King Frederick VII of Denmark was something of a buffoon, or at least according to Bismarck it would seem this way, but this monarch was deadly serious about the good governance of his country. Denmark, like its neighbours, had endured revolution in 1848, whereupon a new constitution had been promised by Frederick VII's father, a constitution which directly affected Denmark's German possessions, those possessions being the duchies of Schleswig and Holstein that were just on the border with Denmark. In 1864, as we'll see, Bismarck would engage in a war with the Danes for the sake of these two German duchies, which had a majority German population. But in 1857, Bismarck had to admit that the nobles of these duchies, which he conversed with, didn't see themselves as German citizens. They would not hear of a little German state, Bismarck wrote, for the morsel of European status at Copenhagen, was still dearer to them. We'll see how he gets on with this task in the last episode where we properly cover the Danish war, but for now, it's worth pointing out the fact that all of this foreshadowing was a historian's dream. By the end of 1857, he had visited and made a favourable impression on two of his future victims, them being the French and the Danes, but he remained frank and renowned regarding his opinion of his third victim, the Austrians, who were under no illusions about how Bismarck felt about them. Also in August 1857, Bismarck suffered some rare bad luck. He had a hunting accident and he fell over the corner of a rock, grievously injuring his shin in the process. The way Bismarck describes this, you'd think it was more of a pinprick than an actual serious accident, but true to form, he didn't exactly do his best to patch himself up afterwards. He preferred to ignore the problem with catastrophic results later on in his life. Bismarck was more than occupied by news of change underway at the top of Prussia's government, though, starting with the king himself. Following a meeting with the Austrian emperor Franz Josef in early July, Frederick William then travelled to Saxony and began a tour of the smaller German states before he suffered what seemed to be a stroke in the middle of the month of July. Edwin Manteuffel, Frederick William's minister-president, was anxious to ensure that the king was protected from the bad influences of ambitious courtiers gunning for his job. And so he ensured that Frederick William was whisked back to San Su Chi, the royal palace of Prussia built by Frederick the Great. While he was there, rumours of the king's mental illness grew, but to his credit, the king continued to perform his duties. He met with the Tsar in a train carriage in early October, which Bismarck believes only made matters worse because the carriage was badly ventilated and true to form back then, the two monarchs smoked heartily, filling the whole carriage with tobacco smoke. Following these incidents and his generally declining health, Frederick William suffered what Bismarck described as an apoplectic fit. As the Prussian physicians struggled with the question of how to cure the king, Frederick William's younger brother, Prince Wilhelm, stepped up to the plate. With his older brother effectively incapacitated, the Prussian show had to go on. The king's absolutist powers meant that several day-to-day functions couldn't actually be performed unless there was someone to stand in for that absolutist leader. As heir to the childless Frederick William, Wilhelm fit this bill perfectly. He began to assume more duties in Prussian governance as a result. This was troubling for Manteuffel, of course, because he represented the older king and a ministry from an age which now seemed to have been passed by. Around this time, Bismarck went to meet with Prince Wilhelm, who had a long talk with him about the pros and cons of upholding the constitution or of being rid of it. 
This constitution, don't forget, was what made possible the upper and lower houses of the Prussian parliament, and which made possible the limitations of the powers of the king. As future king, Wilhelm wanted to know if he would have to abide by these annoying limits too, or whether there would be grounds for starting afresh with some good old-fashioned absolutism, just like they used to have in the old days. But Wilhelm, after conversing with Bismarck, quickly began to realise that putting the genie of democracy back in the bottle was impossible, even in the limited amount of democracy the Prussians had been given, and it would send a message of instability to Prussia's neighbours and her rivals in Germany. Bismarck records what he said in this line to Prince Wilhelm on the subject. That questions of constitution were subordinate to the necessities of the country and its political position in Germany, and that there was no urgent necessity to touch ours at the present, and that for the time being, the question of forces and internal self-reliance was the chief thing. Whether Wilhelm heeded this advice, or simply came to see things this way on his own, we don't know, but either way, Wilhelm refrained from changing how Prussia was governed for the moment. There would be no abrupt return to the old days, in other words, if Prince Wilhelm assumed power as the king. When Bismarck then travelled to San Chi to see how King Frederick William was doing in early October 1857, he found Manteuffel anxious and fully in the know about Bismarck's conversation and long walk and talk with Prince Wilhelm. Was Bismarck angling to replace Manteuffel at the top of the Prussian greasy pole? Manteuffel certainly seemed to think so, and he asked Bismarck why he hadn't gone to his post, meaning Frankfurt, at a time like this, to which Bismarck replied that he was very much needed in San Chi. Whether or not the beleaguered royal family did have need of this ambitious ambassador is hard to say, but Bismarck certainly believed it, and almost by virtue of this self-confidence, he ensured that his name remained known. Of course, this wasn't the end of the story of the Prussian succession. Grave challenges were still to come, and one of these was thrown his way on the 23rd of October 1857. On that date, Prince Wilhelm was charged with acting in the name of King Frederick William, for the next three months. It was seen as a temporary measure, but actually this would be renewed three more times, until in October 1858, Prince Wilhelm was declared regent, and it became a matter of time when Frederick William would pass away, an event which would officially hand the crown to his younger brother. It should be stated for the record that Bismarck was not especially well-liked by this new regent, There was no indication at this point that Bismarck would one day work with Wilhelm as the king and would make him into the first emperor or kaiser of Germany. At this point, Wilhelm regarded Bismarck, reasonably enough, as a wild reactionary and once he took power officially, it was likely he would replace him in Frankfurt with someone who was more pliable and docile or at the very least, someone who had less of a vendetta against the Austrians. It was also unlikely that Manteuffel would be allowed to stay on because Wilhelm wasn't a great fan of his either. Bismarck believed that Wilhelm, like his son Frederick, who had married Queen Victoria's firstborn daughter, Victoria Jr., was under liberal influences, and Bismarck then became anxious at the possibility that he would have to serve as a minister in a liberal Prussian cabinet, beholden to English opinion and influences. It was a great misfortune of Bismarck's that he hadn't made some effort to woo Wilhelm from an early stage, especially since the law of succession stipulated that Wilhelm would succeed his childless brother one day. But Bismarck didn't see eye to eye with Wilhelm, who had his own ideas about Prussian government, 
and Bismarck certainly held a grudge against Augusta, Wilhelm's wife, and she against him for suggesting back in 1848 that Wilhelm should abdicate in favour of their son. These were anxious times, but the years between 1857 and 1861, when Prince Wilhelm became King Wilhelm, were doubly anxious because it was always possible that Frederick William might make a recovery, even though it was unlikely. This wasn't merely Wilhelm who was ascending to the throne, his family was as well. Wilhelm as king would mean that his son Frederick was the heir, and as bad as Bismarck and Wilhelm's relationship was, Bismarck's relationship with Frederick was worse still. Wilhelm was supposedly sympathetic to liberal reform, but Frederick, with his English wife, seemed to embody that liberal Anglo-Prussian vision of government, and this was a vision which Bismarck could not, under any circumstances, tolerate. It would surely transform Prussia to little more than a British satellite if this went ahead. It would be intolerable to allow these influences to dilute Prussian independence and thus reduce his own opportunities for acquiring a fulfilling ministerial post. But the facts were clearly against Bismarck. There was no indication now that Wilhelm, whose brother had collapsed from mental illness before reaching his 65th birthday, would die a few weeks shy of his own 91st birthday. At this point, the 60-year-old Wilhelm appeared little more than a caretaker king, who would rule for perhaps a decade, maybe if he was lucky, before paving the way for the new liberal regime of Frederick, who was in his prime in his late 20s during this crisis. A betting Prussian man, in other words, considering the durability of Prussian monarchs at the time, would have bet that Frederick would have succeeded to the Prussian crown before his 40th birthday. If this occurred, as many were expecting, then Prussia would enjoy a liberal monarchy the likes of which it had never experienced before, and in combination with these strong English links, a complete reimagining of Prussian policy, not just at home, but also abroad, would have been possible. In this arrangement, there'd surely be no room for reactionary, conservative Junker like Bismarck, who would surely have nothing in common with the liberal pro-British ministry under King Frederick and Victoria Jr. This perhaps explains why Bismarck was only expecting to rule as a minister for 10 years before retiring, as we noted earlier, to grow fruit trees. Maybe he imagined his political window was only large enough to contemplate a brief period of rule, owing to the plain facts of the royal line. Interestingly, it was against Bismarck's character to change tack and embark on a campaign of flattery either towards Prince Wilhelm or his son. He also didn't consider the possibility, the slight possibility of course, that he might actually be wrong and that liberalism might have been the way to go. We never see any transformations like these in Bismarck's principles, and for those historians who claim that he didn't have principles and that he only stuck to his ambitious guns, I feel as though if this was really true and if Bismarck didn't really have any principles to speak of, then he wouldn't have been so anxious about the possibility of a liberal ministry. He would have seen it as an opportunity. And he wouldn't have allowed himself to be bound by ideological constraints, which he surely was being bound by, so long as he remained convinced that liberal Prussia was a bad thing for him and, well, for Prussia as well. Rather than change the situation or change himself, Bismarck seems to have just accepted that as soon as Wilhelm or his son Frederick ascended to the throne, his options would be radically reduced and he would have to take stock again of what exactly he could do next. 
The fact that everything was soon to change, and change against him for that matter, caused Bismarck profound anxiety, particularly over 1858, in what proved to be his final full year as ambassador to Frankfurt. While in this capital of German culture and international intrigue, Bismarck had learned an enormous amount, and he had come to terms with his abilities, as well as his limits. It was an invaluable education, just as, to his credit, King Frederick William had imagined it would be. On the 6th of November 1858, Edwin von Manteuffel was officially dismissed as Minister-President by Prince Wilhelm. This was a troubling omen for Bismarck, while he had never been particularly loyal to Manteuffel, the latter had been good to him, and provided him with an invaluable amount of support while he had been in Frankfurt. At the very least, even if he hadn't always gone to bat for him, he had humoured him, he had allowed his opinions to filter through, not just to the ministry, but also to the king. Now that Manteuffel was gone though, Bismarck would have no safety net, and he must have imagined that he was living on borrowed time in Frankfurt. What began under Wilhelm's direction was the so-called New Era in Prussian government, with Wilhelm at its head, and a new face, Karl Anton von Hohenzollern, took over as minister-president. Karl Anton von Hohenzollern's very surname underlined his status as someone of serious importance, Hohenzollern being the surname of the Prussian line of kings, and Karl Anton was in fact a cousin of Wilhelm. He would hold his position as minister-president for nearly three years, before resigning in 1862 in the midst of a crisis over the military budget, a crisis which, as we'll see, proved essential in bringing in an even fresher face, that of Bismarck's, abruptly and somewhat unexpectedly into the halls of power. Of import to note for us is that neither Karl Anton as minister-president, nor Schleinitz, the new foreign minister, had much love for Bismarck. So long as they held their posts, Bismarck was unlikely to get a seat in the new Prussian government. It is interesting to see how Bismarck operated at this point in his life. He couldn't have known, of course, that power, ultimate power which he had for so long craved, was only a few years away. At the moment, though, he was depressed and dejected, and the admission of minister-president seemed like an outcome from another alternative universe. Bismarck quickly encountered signs that, far from being kept close by the prince, he was to be sent as far away as possible. While attending a ball in early January 1859, Bismarck learned from various gossips that Wilhelm intended to steal him from Frankfurt and post him instead to the remote ambassadorship in St. Petersburg. To serve as Prussia's ambassador to Russia was surely a great honour. It was a step up from staying in the German horizons of Frankfurt and it would mean that Bismarck would get a chance to apply his abilities not just to the German stage, but also to the world stage. To Bismarck, though, the appointment stank. What followed was a breathtaking confrontation between the presumptive 43-year-old Bismarck and his future king. And Bismarck records it in his memoirs, how on the 26th of January 1859, I betook myself to the regent, the regent being Wilhelm, where he said openly that I heard that I was to be transferred to St. Petersburg, and I begged permission to express my regret, in the hope that it could be reversed. The first counter-question which His Majesty gave was, Who told you that? Evidently, Bismarck was correct. The rumours were true, and he was destined to be packed off to the Russian capital to begin a new phase in his career. A new phase which he did not want. Bismarck was happy in Frankfurt, 
and if he wasn't to be given a post in Wilhelm's new government, then he'd prefer to stay where he was, where the other German states knew him well, and where he had settled into something of a routine. Bismarck, personally, couldn't see the sense in being uprooted, because he wouldn't just be replacing someone in St. Petersburg, but someone else would be replacing him in Frankfurt. And typically, I bet you didn't see this coming, but Bismarck didn't believe they'd be able to do as good a job in the capital of the German Confederation as he had done. The way Bismarck makes his case in his memoirs stuns the reader all the more when we remember that Bismarck was apparently making this case to Wilhelm in person. It's worth detailing what Bismarck claims, even though we cannot absolutely guarantee that this is what went down. So Bismarck claims he declared, I thought that in Frankfurt, the federal diet's own earth, with the exits and entrances of which I had become acquainted down to the very soil pipes, I could render more useful service than any possible successor, who would first, after in the very complicated position, due to relations with numerous courts and ministers. I was personally acquainted with every German prince and every German minister, and with the courts and capitals of the princes of the confederations, and I enjoyed, as far as what was possible for Prussia, an influence in the assembly of the confederation and at the separate courts. This fund of Prussian diplomacy, after its acquisition and conquest, would be ruined to no purpose by my recall from Frankfurt. Bismarck's successor in Frankfurt was to be a fellow by the name of Karl von Usedom, who Bismarck regarded as little more than a cretin with an impossible wife. Usedom was a liberal, and according to Bismarck, he was more of a gossiping courtier than a statesman. His wife would embarrass Prussia at Frankfurt, Bismarck insisted, to which Wilhelm replied, if Usedom's wife was so embarrassing, surely she would embarrass Prussia no matter where she went, so it made no difference placing the couple in Frankfurt. To which Bismarck replied that if only he had decided to marry a tactless woman, as Usedom had, then he would now have a better claim to his Frankfurt position than he now did. This seems to have been too much even for the evidently tolerant Wilhelm, who chastised Bismarck, saying, I do not understand how you can take the matter up so bitterly. St. Petersburg has surely always ranked as the highest post of Prussian diplomacy, and you should accept it as proof of high confidence that I am sending you there. This was a good point on Wilhelm's part, but Bismarck didn't take the message. Instead, he moved to provide his honest opinion not only on his replacement in Frankfurt, but on the entire ministry which Wilhelm was planning to appoint. Your Royal Highness, Bismarck began, has not a single statesman-like intellect in the whole ministry, nothing but mediocrities and limited brains. To which Wilhelm replied with admirable restraint whether Bismarck considered the newly appointed minister for war as a limited brain. By no means, Bismarck replied, but he cannot keep even a drawer in order, much less a ministry, and Schleinitz, the new foreign minister, is a courtier, but no statesman. At this, Wilhelm became irritated and asked Bismarck outright, Do you perchance take me for a sluggard? I will be my own foreign minister and minister of war, that I comprehend. Wilhelm's outburst served to remind his outspoken subject that whoever held the reins of power, it was he as the king-in-waiting who had the final say in all that transpired, and Bismarck, you would do well to remember that. 
Bismarck said that he apologised next before explaining his position. At the present day, the most capable provincial president cannot administer his district without an intelligent district secretary and will always rely upon such a one. The Prussian monarchy requires the analogue in a much higher degree. Without intelligent ministers, your royal highness will find no satisfaction in the result. Nor was Bismarck finished here, and he went on to belittle the abilities and potential of virtually all of Wilhelm's other picks. Where did Bismarck get off behaving like this? It's also worth asking whether he spoke like this to Wilhelm at all. Certainly this question is posed by Jonathan Steinberg, his biographer, who wrote, Whether Bismarck actually said all that, we cannot know. The conversation in question took place 35 years before Bismarck wrote his memoirs. Had he taken notes at the time? Yet the text itself still startles me. The idea that a 43-year-old ambassador could slander the entire cabinet and insult the regent with impunity suggests either that Bismarck could and did get away with anything or that the royal Prussian court practiced a tolerance rather unusual among monarchs. Nobody would have dared to say anything like that to Queen Victoria or Napoleon III. That Bismarck could behave like this certainly gels with how he later behaved when at the height of his powers. His love-hate relationship with King Wilhelm, after all, was the key to his success, and he bullied and battered Wilhelm on regular occasions until both men were reduced to tears. But during his time as minister-president, Wilhelm would virtually always give way to Bismarck. And perhaps in this case, if we believe that Bismarck wasn't telling a bare-faced lie, interactions like these give an indication of what was to come in the relationship between master and subject. Then again, as Bismarck was something of a master of telling bare-faced lies, it is worth saying that we should take these recorded conversations given to us by Bismarck with a rather large pinch of salt. Bismarck left the audience with Wilhelm on the 26th of January 1859, feeling more contented than when he had entered. He wrote in his memoirs that, The prince acknowledged the limitations of the rest of his ministry. On the whole, he stuck to his endeavour to make me regard my mission to St. Petersburg in the light of a distinction, and gave me the impression of feeling relieved that, by my initiative, the question of my displacement, by no means cheering to him either, had been kept out of the conversation. The audience terminated in gracious form on the regent's part, and on my side with the feeling of undisturbed attachment to the master and heightened contempt for the wire-pullers to whose influence, supported by the princess, he was then subject. Here again we see an example of what Bismarck did fairly regularly in his memoirs. It was not the regent's fault, Bismarck claims. Instead, the reason why Wilhelm was hostile to some of his suggestions was because that same Wilhelm, the Prussian king, was subject to evil influences, those wire-pullers who had the goal of shunting Bismarck off to a far-flung post like St. Petersburg where, while he was in cold storage, he couldn't bother the king or influence the king or hold any meaningful ministerial post. This at least was how Bismarck rationalised the situation to himself. It seemed to be above his imagination to suppose that the king simply didn't like him, or, on the other hand, that the king genuinely believed in him and saw something in him and wanted him to earn more of his stripes with a ministerial posting in St. Petersburg. On the 29th of January 1859, Bismarck's position as the next ambassador to Russia was confirmed. 
It has to be stated that this was a stunning graduation from the German stage at Frankfurt to the world stage of St. Petersburg, especially for a man who had been in politics less than a decade and who now embarked on only his second official position. It is equally surprising that the ungrateful Bismarck seemed to think only of the cons, at least for now, rather than seeing his move as a promotion, courtesy of the man who would soon be his king. Rather than simply cashier him or force him into retirement, Wilhelm had decided, even though he didn't trust Bismarck, to make use of him in a theatre which could really benefit from his frankness, from his evident talent for people and languages, and for his single-mindedness in pursuing Prussia's interests. It is also worth considering Wilhelm's own objectives, since Bismarck, a known opponent of Austria, was now to be sent to a place where, in Russia, he could cultivate a Prussian-Russian understanding based on, potentially at least, undermining the Austrian influence. Whatever the motive had been, even if it had simply been to get him out of the way, as Bismarck suspected, he would have to obey his master, and he returned to Frankfurt in a gloomy mood to pack his things and prepare for the trek to St. Petersburg. On the 6th of March, 1859, Bismarck left Frankfurt for good, never to return to the city, which had proved so essential in making him into the politician and realist of such great fame. It would be fair to say that Bismarck had grown up in Frankfurt. His views had become more nuanced and refined, his abilities had been given a chance to shine, and his reputation became impressive all by itself. He possessed all the qualities required for promotion and advancement, and Frankfurt had demonstrated that this official could be directed towards other troubling tasks, with great results. The Frankfurt adventure is often forgotten in considerations of Bismarck's life and times, but it represents something of a bygone age in itself, because even while Bismarck benefited immensely from the experience, few of his successors would ever enjoy such a practical education. Ironically enough, it would be due to Bismarck's own policies and ambitions that the status of Frankfurt as the international capital of German culture and tradition and history was changed, and the German Confederation would be reimagined as something far more supreme and impressive, as the German Empire, with not Frankfurt, but Berlin as its centre. Now that we've brought Bismarck's story up to the point where he's about to depart for Russia, I feel this is a good moment to say goodbye for now and pick up the story in the next episode. If you've gotten all these episodes at once, if you're a patron of any level and you've gotten them all in one go, then just click on the next episode and be on your way. Otherwise, you'll have to wait a week, I'm afraid. So I'll be seeing you all next week when we pick up the story from 1859. Thanks for listening in, history friends, patrons, PhD pals, and everyone else. I really appreciate it. And make sure to spread the word wherever you can. Social media, in person, if you can do that while we're all self-isolating, or anywhere else. You've been great. This has been fun. And I'll be seeing you all soon. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.